from Kurtco Media. Doctor, doctor, you gotta help me see what's going on. Doctor, doctor. Look, I, I know we've all had about enough of this COVID nineteen thing. We're tired of the politics of it. We're tired of the endless conflicting reports, what we should do, what we shouldn't do, what we should wear, not wear. You know, surfaces transfer disease, or maybe they don't. We're ready to open schools. We can open restaurants, baseball, or maybe we're not. Oh, and please don't blame my co-host for this opening. I didn't tell him about it, and so forgive him, and you can blame me. This is a particular pleasure today. I get to chat it up with my very best friend, Dr. Stephen Tabak who also just happens to be the quadruple board-certified doctor of internal medicine, pulmonary disease, critical care, and neurocritical care, whatever that means. He's also on the front lines fighting the COVID battle for us every day at his hospitals, which we're eternally grateful for. And by the way, he saved my dad's life twice. Dr. Stephen Tabak. How you doing, Stephen? I'm doing great. It's good to hear you and, and see you at least virtually anyway. It's weird, isn't it? We would normally see each other all the time. Right, at least twice a week, you know, during the week, and then on the weekends, dinner. And by the way, I know you've been teetotaling for like three months. You're going to have to explain that to the group why. I am drinking the Macallan 25 that you gave me for my birthday, so thank you very much. Happy birthday. <laughs> I'm glad to see that you still have some left in the bottle as of, you know, mid-May. So why is it you're not drinking, Steve? Well, I mean, from my perspective, being on the front lines, you want to do everything you can to... Uh, protect yourself immunologically. And so my goal was to optimize my immune system, considering the fact that there is no vaccine. But in order to optimize one's immune system, you want to eat healthier, you want to sleep better. And when I looked at the things that I was doing in my life, I was not exercising as much as I would have liked to. My sleep was always fragmented. And I do know that alcohol suppresses the immune system. Not that I, you know, I have more than probably one drink a week when I see you. I never drink otherwise. But nevertheless, I felt that in order to really give myself the best possible defense against this miserable virus, I should do everything I could now to optimize my immune system. So are you, you eating differently too? Yeah. Eating vegan, I've been avoiding caffeine, which has helped my, my sleep tremendously. I've avoided alcohol. I've started back on regular exercise. So exercise has something to do with your immune system? Absolutely. Exercise is very important for your immune system. Why? You know, it's a very good question. I'm not sure I have an answer, a simple answer as to why, but exercise absolutely increases circulation. It stimulates your, your metabolic rate. It kind of wakes up your cells and it optimizes cellular performance and metabolic performance. And at the end of the day, that's what your immune system is. It's doing constant surveillance of cancer cells. It's doing constant surveillance for viruses and bacteria. And you want it at optimal performance. But you're telling me that a glass of Macallan 25 is not so good for my immune system? It's, it's certainly not good for your immune system. Now, the question is, does it actually have any deleterious effects truly? Having a glass, uh, you know, a week or so? Probably not. Well, but what would it do to your system that would affect your immune system? Well, we do know that you do have what we call myelosuppression and erythrosuppression. That is, you stop manufacturing red blood cells. People who use alcohol to excess clearly are, have increased susceptibility to bacterial infections, viral infections. They manufacture less red blood cells. So obviously, they're going to have difficulty adequately getting oxygen to their vital organs. Organs are going to suffer in terms of their peak performance. Speaking of having a little fun with it, I'm going to put your feet to the fire a little bit right away. 
exactly four months ago, Steve, we had the, the honor of being joined by Dr. Suzanne Donovan, who broached the concept of this coronavirus. And you guys were talking about it, and I almost could hear a battle hymn of the Republic in the background, and glory, glory, hallelujah, and you guys were talking about how America was so strong and so well-designed as far as our health care system, and we really knew what we were doing, and chances are this corona thing wasn't going to be a big deal for us, as it would be potentially in some other parts of the world. That was then. This is now. Uh, Steve, the U.S. has 4% of the world's population, and we're currently running at 25% of the world's global cases and deaths. Why is that? First and foremost, let's say that the superpower of the world absolutely blew it as far as efficiency in terms of testing, in terms of reporting, in terms of personal protective equipment. We really were not ready, even though we could have been ready we missed multiple steps in the preparatory process. Looking at the flip side, there is also a negative imagery, which is not necessarily true because we believe in truth in reporting. And so we are gonna be very honest about how many people have tested positive, what those actual numbers are. And so I think we're very accurate when it comes to uh, the representation of our data. Many other countries who may also be surging at the moment are less than honest about the number of cases. So I think there's a lot of countries that are downplaying the severity and the intensity of the disease that they're experiencing. I want to give you a couple of numbers. Go USA, we have almost two and a half million cases of reported COVID in the U.S. And our new cases today, by the way, were 35,000. And we're up to 125,000 deaths. The closest runner-up to that is Brazil. And they have roughly 45% of the cases and roughly 40% of the deaths that we have. Everybody else is miles behind. Even the UK has 300,000 cases and 40,000 deaths. I understand the idea that perhaps maybe we blew the beginning of it, but it does seem like we figured it out pretty quick, and we made changes pretty fast. And I mean, look what happened to New York City. They were ground zero. It was insane over there. And they're down to 600 new cases today. On the other hand, California has almost 5,500 cases today. What's going on here? Two different issues. The first issue is what's going on in, in the UK and, and other countries. If you have to also take it into the context of what their general population size is. So in, in terms of what percentage of their population are contracting the disease relative to what percentage of our population are contracting the disease, we're a very large country, but what percentage of our population is getting it relative to UK's population, there is a certain percentage differential there, number one. But two, we do have, uh, unfortunately, an intolerance to discomfort in this country, perhaps more so than other countries. We like our civil liberties. We like to enjoy our lives. We, we really enjoy a very high quality of life in the United States. That's something wonderful, and there's a good reason to enjoy living in the United States along with the freedoms that we can brag about that other countries, I think, should model. But with our society and our folkways and mores and our civil liberties come with it a certain responsibility, but also an intolerance to anything that infringes upon our liberties and our pursuit of happiness, if you will. And so when we put out a stay-at-home order, because it's obviously the most reasonable thing to do, and when we saw it in 1918 when we had the pandemic, his history tells us 
that this works in terms of diminishing the number of cases over a period of time. We see that it works, but we become very intolerant and impatient. So we have a very low tolerance in this country, I think, for any kind of pain and uh, anything that's going to infringe on our normal quality of life. Well, so let's, let's talk about the future then for a minute, what, what we may have learned and what maybe we didn't learn. First of all, how's it going at your hospital? Are you seeing cases come in? Uh, it was pretty light for a while there, I know. It, it was pretty light for a while. We're starting to see a slow, steady surge upward. And, you know, you talk about the real estate market being local. I feel like the COVID market, if you will, is very local as well. What we're noticing epidemiologically locally is that there's a lot more Latinos that seem to be coming down with the illness. We've heard a disproportionate number of African-Americans are are suffering from COVID or have more severe COVID. In our hospital, we're seeing more Latinos. And I think if you have a hardworking population that have now met their limit as to what they can withstand in terms of staying at home and no longer working because they need to feed their family, people are now branching out, going back to work, irrespective of the risk because they have to put food on the table. And I don't blame people when they're caught in that double bind. Quite frankly, I would be making the same exact decision. I think I would be going back. I understand that. But why is it that if you had 100 old white guys who come down with COVID and 100 old black guys that come down with COVID, why does this seem to hit the the African-American population so much harder? I don't really have the epidemiologic data on that, other than to say that African-Americans have a higher proportion of hypertension. Hypertension has been thought to be one of the risk factors relative to that. I think still socioeconomically, if we're going to talk about the elderly African-American and the the elderly Caucasian, I think socioeconomically, the Caucasians are still in, in a higher level economically, which then would afford them throughout their entire life, greater access to healthcare. And so I believe that the elderly Caucasians will be healthier in general than the elderly African-Americans. But I think when you're going to compare those two demographic groups, the elderly African-American population has suffered throughout their lives for inadequate access to health care, inequality in terms of the job market and, uh, and economic remuneration, and eventually extrapolates to poorer health, higher levels of frailty, and greater susceptibility, therefore, you know, with this horrendous pandemic. Today, there was a Harvard Med School professor. He said there are young people who have recovered, and by young people, he was saying 20 to 30, who have recovered. They had hardly any symptoms whatsoever, but then they have something called ground glass opacity in their lungs, which will cause them long-term harm. Can you tell me what is that? So when you look at an x-ray or even on a CAT scan, you can see the lung tissue very clearly when it's healthy because it's filled with air. And air on a CAT scan and on a chest x-ray shows up as black on these films. When you have a heavy-duty pneumonia, your alveoli, the little air sacs of your lungs, are filled with fluid and bacteria, or in this case, virus and white blood cells, and it, it basically obliterates the air spaces. And you see a dense white matter that you can't even distinguish from the ribs, from the bones, which are very dense. In between there, you can sort of see um, somebody who has a mild inflammation of their lung tissue, and it, it has the appearance of ground glass. What does that mean? If you ever looked at a shower that has smoked glass in the shower, you can sort of see light through it. 
Mm-hmm. And you know that there's structures beyond what you can see, but you can't really make out the images. There's sort of a, a hazy, light, white shading. And that's what ground glass looks like on a chest x-ray or a CAT scan. It doesn't mean that there's glass in the lungs. It just means that the image that you're seeing on CT or x-ray appears like a ground glass or a smoked glass would appear like in your shower. This type of opacification may or may not cause permanent damage. First of all, people with heart failure can have ground glass opacifications. And I don't think it's a foregone conclusion because I'm taking care of a lot of patients now that are post-COVID that we do see in the office, at least virtually still. But when I look at their CAT scans, yes, they do have these ground glass opacifications that were very severe in the hospital. But as I'm following them with x-rays in my office or periodic CAT scans, they're going away. So I do believe that these young people, that a vast majority of them are going to have complete resolution without much scarring. And if there is scarring, luckily, we are given 4 billion alveoli, the little air sacs. You can easily get by you know, with 2 billion if you had to. So we don't want to lose any, but there's a lot of redundancy in the respiratory system. So let's talk about some of today's revelations. There was some testifying in front of a House committee today. Dr. Fauci was testifying, and also Dr. Stephen Hahn, the FDA commissioner, was testifying. They were talking about the vaccine and how many companies are getting closer to a vaccine and what phase they're in. So they talked about, apparently, there's quite a few that are going into phase three of clinical trials. What does that mean? But they're actually trying it on on human volunteers because you can try this in the lab and you try it with, with a myriad of animals to see that you are getting an immune response, which parenthetically has been a real problem with an RNA virus, which is what coronavirus is, is that a lot of times it becomes more difficult to get an immunologic response to an RNA virus than a DNA virus. One of the reasons why it's been hard to get a vaccine for the common cold. So first and foremost, you want to make sure that you you have the right proteins to be triggering this immunologic response. And obviously, you try it out in animal models first. Then once it seems like that it is stimulating an immune response, then you want to make sure that it's not causing any deleterious effects. And in the animal models, provided that you're not seeing serious side effects, you can then move on to your phase three, where you have human volunteers who are willing to receive the vaccine. And then see if they grow another head or... Well, right. Obviously, not going to grow another head, but there are people who've had kidney failure from vaccines, heart damage, respiratory problems, and you don't know for sure how a human being is going to respond. Many animal models translate very well to human models. But you can't predict how a a chimpanzee reacted or how the rat reacted and say definitively that humans are going to be fine and react the same way. So you have to try it in small samples. So they said to Fauci, under the circumstances, because, you know, you're funding this a certain way and you're going into production on these vaccines long before you're ready to do so. And, you know, supposedly you're going to throw away a billion dollars worth of vaccines if it doesn't work out. Can you guarantee the safety of a vaccine? And he said in kind of a throwaway line, well, you cannot absolutely guarantee vaccine safety until after you've tested it in the field. Yikes. Well, of course, yikes. But it's interesting. Again, here we are. We have this expectation that science is supposed to give us 100% cures and zero side effects. I hear it all the time. People come up to me, oh, I heard this is going to be the best medication. They say it has no side effects. And you roll your eyes as a practitioner and say, and when you fly in an airplane, 
Do you expect that there is no risk of crashing? When you're in your car, do you expect that there's zero risk? As a people, we need to grow up a little bit and realize that, yeah, there are risks. There's a risk to this disease. The risk of this disease is far worse than the risk of a vaccine that may have some damage or that doesn't work at all. So yes, in order to get to the cure, this isn't a perfect world. Science is far from perfect. We still have a long way to go. And so for us at this point, a computer can't kick out exactly the molecular structure of a vaccine that we need and manufacture it like you see in science fiction movies. At this juncture, the body has to manufacture the antibodies. You have to try a vaccine, see how it works, see how the populace responds. And yes, unfortunately, some of those people who are going to have some side effects, and you're going to need to know what those side effects are. You're going to need to know what the magnitude of those side effects are. Will somebody die from the vaccine? I hate to say this. The answer is yes. But somebody might die from a dose of aspirin too, right? Well, that's exactly right. There are people who die from Tylenol. They're deathly allergic to Tylenol, which is very rare. But there are going to be a very tiny percentage of the population that will have that. I know that I could possibly have a bad reaction to the vaccine. I will be in the front line taking that vaccine. And God forbid I pass away from it. I still, I will have no regrets because I knew it was the right decision to at least proceed down that path because vaccinating the world will save millions of lives in the future. That being said, Steve, we'll be back in just a minute. A moment of your time. A new podcast from Kurt Co Media. Currently 21 years old, and today I felt like I'm magic extended from her fingertips down to the you base of my spine. You have to take care spine. of yourself because the world needs you and Trust your me, voice. Trust me, every do-gooder that asked about me was ready to spit on my but dream. Her fingers were facing me. You can feel like your purpose and your worth is really being questioned. Going to stop me from playing the piano. She buys walkie-talkies. Wonders to whom she should give the second dice. Cats don't love humans. We never did. We never will. We just find the ones that The beauty of rock climbing is that you can only focus on what's right in life. And so our American life begins. We may need to stay apart, but let's create together. Available on all podcast platforms. Submit your piece at kurtco.com slash a moment of your time. So we're back. And Steve, I have a, a, another pet peeve. First of all, it's way more difficult being me than you. The reason why it's more difficult being me is I get a bunch of information mostly from TV and newspapers and press. And of course, you get information from like Mayo Clinic newsletters and things like that. So you know more about what's going on. But I hear conflicting stories about how immune you could be if you've had the virus and now you're somewhat immune to it, maybe, or you're not immune to it, maybe. Do we have any idea what the immunity is after having the virus? So I'm going to freak you out now because you think in, in many ways you have it harder than I do because you're in the dark and you're getting conflicting reports. The medical community is getting conflicting reports. And I'm, I'm looking over the literature very closely. I'm on the site every single day of the Society of Critical Care Medicine for new data that's coming up. And I don't believe that we have a consensus truly of once you've had the disease, can you get it again? At all? Like we don't have any, the, nobody who had it in February or March recovered from it and was tested negative and then somehow in April, May or June, they got it again? I personally, in, in my practice and in my reading, I have not seen cases of people who have had the disease, 
recovered from the disease, and had it recur. And I believe personally that once you get it and you're cured, you have at least long-term immunity for the season, meaning that you're not going to get it next week. I don't believe, this isn't based on data, but I don't believe, I think your immune system, once it has kept the virus at bay, will stay in your system and there will be this memory to, to this virus throughout the season, is my opinion. There are certain diseases, you get long-term immunity lifelong. Chickenpox, smallpox, uh, mumps, those things, once you get it, you cannot get it again. It would be highly unlikely, let's say, to get it again. Back to the coronavirus, I do believe that you do, it does confer at least a shorter term immunity. Long term, don't know, probably not, but, but there's no way to know for sure yet. The data isn't out. This is a new virus. I mean, that's cute, but we're paying you guys, so you ought to be able to tell us whether or not it works. Exactly. And that's why medicine. <laughs> We're still practicing. Oh, yeah. That's the name of the show, isn't it? That's the whole expletive point of the show is to get to the truth of what medicine can and can't do. There are a lot of wonderful things that we do. A lot of people are cured every day. But also, unfortunately, a lot of people pass away every day. It means we're not where we want to be. We're still practicing. We still have a long way to go. As we open up schools, I mean, when we sent our kids to schools, it's like sending them to a giant Petri dish, and they bring home every type of cold and flu that could possibly exist and just pass it around pretty much every other week. How can we possibly open up these elementary schools and not expect that we're going to be passing around coronavirus to all the parents of the kids? You know what? You're absolutely right. Basically, it's a balance, and you have to decide as a society the risks the benefits, and, and what are those choices. Schools opening are not a huge risk for the children because the vast majority of children are not going to contract the disease, or if they get it, they're not even going to know that they will be asymptomatic. The risk to society is then the, the children who come back, and I say children, but even adult children that come back from school place parents and grandparents at extreme risk. Kids that live at home, you know, adult children that, uh, that are in your home, that are not social distancing maybe as much as, as they should, putting their parents at risk today. And I think it's important that the tighter you can keep your control, the tighter you can stay to six feet distancing, wearing your mask, the greater impact it's going to have on the population. It's not going to be 100%. You want 100% success, shut down the entire economy, everybody stay at home, and yet that doesn't work either because the ramifications of that are also catastrophic. So it's always a balance. There still is a philosophy of, do you want to have a healthy economy or do you want to have a healthy populace? Now, Sweden, who is not subject to the politics of America, did something very interesting. From day one, they kept their community open. Now, they wore masks and they tried to distance, but restaurants stayed open people continued going to work. And they said, when this is over, we want to have a healthy economy. And they paid a terrible price. They lost lots and lots of people more than they needed to. The trouble with this, the goal of staying at home, flattening the curve and hanging out long enough for there to be a vaccine, which is the strategy, kind of cripples us economically. Because it's not like, okay, if you can just stay at home for six months, we're going to be okay. It's not like that. It's more like if you can just stay at home for a year, we're going to save millions of lives. Absolutely. But will you have a job? Will you have a society to go back to after that time? If we can get a vaccine within three months, we wouldn't be having these discussions. It's when you're talking, this could be end of the year. Maybe we won't even have a vaccine. Now what? 
Is that possible that there simply won't be a vaccine? It'll be like the common cold? It is possible. I think it's unlikely. The common cold, there are so many different viruses that can cause a cold. It's, an, it's a daunting task. It's not like, oh, there's one virus. This is the cold virus. Get, a, get rid of it and your nose will never be the same. Because we know that there's only one virus that's ca- causing you know, SARS-CoV-2. There's so many resources being brought to bear on this particular issue. Very low likelihood that they won't, researchers will not be able to come up with a vaccine. I do believe we will have one by the end of the year. It really is scary because, you know, when you look at Florida, for example, which is like one big old age home, if we don't find a, a vaccine or a treatment pretty soon, it's on, it's on a huge upswing. It's now number two in the country as far as daily new cases. And, you know, of all states, that's the one that makes me most nervous because of their demographic. Without a doubt, it is a serious problem. The biggest issue we have sociologically is the fact that if we overwhelm our resources, your healthcare professionals and your doctors are sick, who's going to take care of everybody else? So you want to flatten the curve so healthcare professionals can keep on top of the cases. It's not that you're going to flatten the curve and the disease is going to go away and now you're protecting you know, your doctors and nurses. Diseases are going to continue coming in. But it is so much easier for us to take care of 20 patients with COVID at any given time. If suddenly we all decide, eh, throw caution to the wind, I'm either going to get it or I'm not, I'm going to be fatalistic. Yes, that's true. And you may win that gamble, but you also may be infecting hundreds of people daily in your contact, which will then overwhelm resources and will put other lives at jeopardy, including your healthcare workers. So in talking about some of the conflicting messages we're getting, let me throw some things out to you. Surfaces. Sometimes we hear that the virus lives on surfaces as f- for as much as a day or two days, maybe three days. And then recently we heard that, well, maybe surfaces really aren't the problem. What's the real deal? So here's the reason for the confusion to begin with. A novel virus, one that we've never had contact with before, we have no idea the, the mechanism of its contagion. If you remember, I always try to use other viruses analogously. When the AIDS epidemic came on, there was this fear of, oh my God, how do you get this? And the the terror that the world felt about a disease because you had no idea, how did you contract it? Therefore, how can you prevent it? Once we found out that AIDS was sexually transmitted, suddenly it's okay to hug and kiss and have close contact with a person who has been afflicted with AIDS because there was knowledge and there was time and studies that eventually gave you that power. The knowledge is power. They gave you the power to realize what your limitations are and what you can and cannot do with the virus. Same happened with coronavirus. So it was a brand new virus. So they do all sorts of tests. It would give you peace of mind to know that on that doorknob, it's only alive for 30 seconds. Chances are you're okay. Oh my God, it's, on, it's alive on the doorknob for five days. Terrifying but not necessarily so. So initially, when you have the reports that people are getting it from coughing, from hugging, from kissing, and maybe from doorknobs, it's like, where do you go? So everyone is terrified. You cannot extrapolate, though, how long the virus lives on cardboard or how long it lives on the doorknob. Why not? Why can't you pick up a box that you got from Amazon, test it, and see if the virus is on it? And if you pick up the box and then scratch your face, are you toast? 
Well, because it, it may not transmit that easily by just touching your face. The greatest transmission that we see is when the virus is propelled in an aerosol fashion. Somebody is coughing, sneezing, and then you inhale it down into your respiratory system in great numbers. That's how the virus is predominantly transmitted. It seems like that's why face masks and distancing are the two most important features. Now, we don't want to be cavalier. Oh, Tabak says that doorknobs are not nearly as dangerous as they used to be, so I'm not going to wash my hands. No, of course not. You can contract the virus from touching a surface, putting your fingers in your mouth, rubbing your eyes, but it doesn't seem to be the most common way that people are, are getting this disease. And items left in the sun or drying agents will eventually kill the virus. So contact surfaces, not nearly as deadly as cough, sneeze relative to, to respiratory devices. Do I have to alcohol wipe a box that I just got from Amazon today? It's a good question. Probably not. If you're talking statistics, because that's what we're talking about, if you want 100% guarantee, yeah, you know, you got to be the first colony on the moon. That's where you got to go. So you walk into the grocery store three minutes after that guy stacked the apples so nicely in the produce department, and you pick up one of those apples and you put it in a little plastic bag and you bring it home. What are the chances that that is an issue? And if you're saying that all I have to do is make sure that sometime between touching that apple and touching my face, I have alcohol sanitized and then I'm okay... There's no way to make it airborne after that? You can't, like, shake it loose and, and have it up in the air and breathe it? or No, it'd be very unlikely for you to be able to aerosolize whatever's on the apple. My cousin in New York told me, you know, one of the scary stories that when he went to, to the produce section, he saw a person who was sick with some virus, I'm not sure what, sneezed into his hands, and then picked up an apple, put it down, <laughs> picked up another one and put it down. You know, it's terrifying, right? But the reality is you wash your fruit as best you can. You wash your hands. And the likelihood of contracting the virus that way, I'm here to tell you, is exceedingly low. Is it possible I may eat an apple and get the virus? It's possible. But it is highly unlikely. Okay, so you go to the park and you bring your dog. So you go to the park and your dog runs up to, uh, this dog runs up to absolutely everybody and believes them to be responsible for scratching her ear or, or petting her on the head or, or, or hugging her or whatever she's in the mood for. Does my pet become a carrier? Not a carrier in that the pet will have contracted the disease, which then is going to aerosolize the disease to you. I don't believe we, we have data on, on dogs contracting COVID. But as a surface being touched, just like a table or a chair. Yes, conceivably, if somebody has COVID virus on their hands and they're petting your dog, you can then pick that up as if you would pick it up from a doorknob or from a box. When you pet your dog, go wash your hands. I mean, you don't want to be petting your dog and then rubbing your face. Do you wash your dog for 20 seconds or? or? <laughs> you know, there's no data on that. It probably is not a bad idea to bring your dog home and give it a bath. I want you to explain some of these symptoms to me because I was looking on the CDC website today and, and I saw some, some symptoms that I didn't understand. And this one made me most nervous. New confusion. Why is new confusion a symptom of coronavirus? Well, the trouble with this virus is that it, it, there's a lot of vascular issues. There's a lot of blood clotting that we're seeing. And wherever your body may have a, a blood vessel, and I say that tongue in cheek because every organ, every part of your body doesn't stay alive unless it has a blood vessel. 
if that blood vessel becomes occluded because of a blood clot, because of the viral impact on your clotting system, it's going to cause some damage. When you're having viral invasion of the vasculature of your heart, you're going to have heart failure. When you have the virus invading your lungs, you're going to have lung failure. The same kind of thing can happen in your brain on two separate cases. One, it can directly affect your brain and cause inflammation of the brain, which is called an encephalitis. That usually goes beyond confusion. By then, you're usually almost in a comatose or you're very lethargic. But before it gets to that state, it can affect you by being very confused. Just the illness itself, especially as, as we get older in your 70s and 80s, just being severely ill can cause the brain to shut down almost as a protective mechanism. So confusion where you're not as mentally sharp can be an early sign. It's not the most common, by the way. The most common is fever and cough. I mean, that's why when you're walking into the, all these stores, it's not by coincidence that they're asking, you know, have you had a cough? You know, are you feeling any symptoms? And take your temperature. It's because that's the most common. Fever and cough is number one and two. So while we were sitting here talking, I got a text from our general manager who would like to know about this new thing that's come up where these different blood types seem to be affected by the virus differently. Can you explain that? And, you know, how is type A blood? Is that a good thing, a bad thing? Should I tell her to go to the hospital just because she's a type A? Or As a new virus comes about, it's phenomenal. We are a very inquisitive race, right? I mean, the, human, the homo sapiens love to study, analyze, collate. And so they're always looking for different ways to stratify the disease. Who's more susceptible? In the background of all of that, you're hoping that there'll be a group of people who are safe. So all the Bs should avoid the As. The reality is there are studies out there, but there is nothing definitive. I don't think that there's any definitive susceptibility based on blood type that we can see so far. We're going to take another very, very quick break. But when we come back, I want to talk to you about what you and your hospital are doing to prepare for the confusion that will be created by the fall, where someone has things that, well, seem like symptoms for COVID, but it's really the flu. Well, we'll be right back and talk about it. Hi, I'm Robert Ross, host of Cars That Matter. You might be wondering what makes a car matter, and I have a feeling you already know the answer. Some cars have changed history. Some you can hear a mile away. Some have lines that make your heart skip a beat. If a car has ever made you look twice, then I think you know the ones that matter. Join me as I speak with designers, collectors, and market experts about the passions that drive us and the passions we drive. Cars that matter, wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, Steve, well, we're back. So let, let's go over some of the symptoms that they list on the CDC website. Fever, cough, shortness of breath, fatigue, body aches, muscle aches. Headache, congestion, runny nose, nausea, pain in the chest, new confusion. Oh, I better go get tested. Inability to be awake or stay awake. Sounds like the flu to me. How are you guys going to deal with all the people who get the flu that are suddenly looking for your help and they start checking themselves into the emergency room because they think they're about to deal with COVID? How are you going to deal with the fall? First of all, and don't forget the symptom of loss of taste and smell, which there's a certain segment of the population that that's all they have is just loss of taste and smell, which then goes away. But if, if you remember, a COVID came to the United States in February, actually probably the first case, if you look backward, is even in January. But even in my community, it was March is when we noticed our, when we had our first case that was still within the throes of the flu season. And in China, certainly in December, that was well into the throes of the flu season. 
And it definitely makes it a little bit more confusing and confounding. And anybody who comes in, there's no way you're going to be able to distinguish is it COVID or is it flu right off the bat, other than with your swab test. So you can do a swab test for all sorts of respiratory pathogens, including influenza A and influenza B, as well as COVID. So I think initially it's going to be the same as what we're doing now. And we do have more accurate tests and more rapid tests coming every day. So that I think as somebody comes to the ER, as we are screening everybody now, we're going to be screening those people as well. And if they're COVID negative, they're going to be triaged to a non-COVID unit and going to be treated as if they have flu or other respiratory virus while we're waiting for that biological assay. How fast are these tests now? The COVID test, you know, you, you have that rapidly. I mean, you can get it back in, in many instances within, you know, 45 minutes. In terms of distinguishing what everybody has, not going to be as significant as it was this year, I don't believe, because our testing for this disease is going to be so much better. It's better now than it was. It's going to be even better by December. I don't see that as the issue. I think the larger issue is going to be the numbers, is the fact that now we're just dealing with COVID. Just. Look at the freaking numbers, pardon my French, of COVID everywhere. You're going to quadruple that with other respiratory viruses. You're going to quintuple that by the flu that's what's going to be so daunting. And is that what we really are hoping for is the vaccine or are we hoping more for a therapeutic or a treatment that minimizes the effect of the virus so that we can have it and be done with it? Both. I mean, obviously the vaccine is the ultimate, right? Because overnight, this thing goes away and it really goes away over a period of several months, even with vaccines. But I'll take, you know, a treatment. I mean, if I have a really good treatment, then it's not as scary. Oh yeah, you have COVID, we're going to treat you and you're going to be fine. If 99% of the people are cured with my treatment, then we'll live without the vaccine. You're a little more reticent to throw somebody on a ventilator nowadays, aren't you? Yeah, we are actually. It's an interesting point. We have found that people on ventilators tend not to do well, but we're not really sure even, is it the ventilator that is negative or is it by the time you absolutely require a ventilator that the odds of coming back are much less. It has the die been cast once you've kind of crossed that threshold. And yet, I just we just had one patient die in my hospital today that we did not ventilate, did not actually re- really require ventilation, but he passed anyway. Oh, I'm sorry. Terrible. Young person in his 50s. How do you deal with that, Steve? After a while, do you become somewhat immune to that? Or do you guys go and, and sob in the closet often with, in your field? I don't think you get immune to it at all. I think what happens is you build a wall. I think you do go into a closet and you cry. If you're able to, you you do it more publicly. And in many ways, that's very therapeutic. But this is going to change our society forever, but it's going to change healthcare professionals forever. On some level, we are all going to be shell-shocked from this. And it's certainly healthcare providers seeing young people, middle-aged people to feel so helpless, to want to be helping people And when all you have is putting them on a ventilator or not, or medications that somehow are somewhat beneficial or not, you feel like you're in the dark ages and you're supposed to be able to cure people. You're supposed to be able to help people and you don't feel like you're really doing as much as you want to be able to do. Um, Not to mention that the human side, the human element of handholding, contact, family discussions, patients are sequestered from healthcare providers who, when they do see them, are covered in their protective equipment. There's something so inhuman about this whole experience for patients and families. It is scarring your healthcare providers. I will never be the same. You build a wall, 
because you learn after, you know, this is starting my 29th year in, in critical care, you build a wall, but God forbid you should ever become immune. Once you become immune, I'm sorry, you, you need to leave your practice because then you've lost your humanity. Steve, I know that you have always been remarkable with families. I mean, it, it's got to be really hard on you because I know that you've always worked very hard to communicate with families and keep them up to speed and try to soothe them as much as possible. And in this case, you don't get to do that very often at all because you're not allowed to let the families come into the hospital and see their grandfather or father or whatever who's sitting there suffering. You know, it's interesting. One thing I will say about tragedy and stress, you see people at their worst and you see people at their best. And it's fascinating to watch. But the general public knows that we're in a pandemic. And the number of discussions I've had on the phone, oftentimes when a loved one is sick, families react with anger and frustration. And then many times they can take it out on a healthcare professional. I have found families under these circumstances amazingly understanding, amazingly compassionate. Um, They're almost always appreciative, but even more appreciative in spite of the fact that they can't come in and see their loved one, that they're not getting the phone calls maybe as often as they otherwise would like to, that there's so much more understanding because they realize that we're on the front lines. I feel respected and loved by the families in spite of the fact that we're not able to be face-to-face. The other side to that is the beauty of technology. Many times we're FaceTiming, although it's not the same as being there present But there is a face-to-face, and there's something about getting to know somebody and seeing a facial expression, and you can get a gist of sincerity in the true heart of an individual. So FaceTime has been really such a wonderful blessing during this terrible time, both in terms of your communication with family and also with the patient reaching out to family. Mm. And I have seen the dynamic of a patient who was just slipping, an elderly person slipping almost into a coma and delirium every day. And then we found this window of opportunity when we were able to have the patient FaceTime with her loved ones at home. And that patient who was sort of slipping away mentally, perked up emotionally, mentally for the next week to the point where it was easier to get her off the ventilator. Well, Steve, I can't imagine doing what you do every single day. I love you for what you do. And I think that heroes like you and people who spent that extra decade going to school so that you could handle this kind of thing. It's actually pretty amazing to watch what you do. And without you, I can't imagine what we'd be like as a society trying to get through something like this. Well, that being said, we're still practicing at this. And this is medicine we're still practicing with Dr. Stephen Tabak. Thank you so much for sitting around talking about this kind of stuff. I know you've just gotten through probably a horrific day, and you did this show anyway. Thank you, Dr. Steve. Always therapeutic to talk to you, though. Doctor, doctor, you gotta help me see what's going on. Doctor, doctor. If you like what you heard, please leave a comment or rating, and please send it to your friends. This episode was recorded at Kurt Coe's Malibu Studios, recorded by our producer, A.J. Mosley, and the music was composed and performed by Celeste and Eric Dick. And a quick thank you to Stephanie, Stuart, Mike, Michael, Chris, Jenny, and Melody. Be healthy, everybody. From Kurt Media, media for your mind.